When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Uh, with those uh, words that we welcome you every week uh, on the Time of Monsters podcast, um, I'm Jeet here. Uh, the podcast is sponsored by The Nation magazine. Uh, it's widely available on all podcasting platforms. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about someone who's, I don't think I would call a, a monster, but maybe a, a problematic fave, uh, as the kids say, uh, which is uh, uh, Betty Friedan, um, uh, who's a, a major figure in second wave feminism, uh, has always been, you know, a kind of center of controversy, um, including from people who have shared her politics, um, uh, but is uh, has a, a huge legacy and a legacy that I actually think is like perhaps more relevant now than it's ever been. Um, and to uh, talk about uh, it, um, Betty Friedan, I'm very happy to have on a uh, lo- frequent uh, flyer on the In Time of Foot Monsters podcast, uh, frequent flyer program, uh, Moira Donegan, uh, who uh, is a columnist at The Guardian, um, a fellow at Stanford University, and uh, also has her own quite excellent podcast, uh, which I would encourage people to check out, and I will put a link to it, called In Bed with the Right, um, where she and Adrian Daub uh, talk about uh, uh, right wing, the intersection between right-wing politics uh, and gender reaction. Um, and uh, uh, among the delights of the podcast, they, they talk about uh, people who uh, um, are long-time um, uh, vet noirs or... Uh, uh, um, uh, problematic, um, uh, not faves, but problematic villains like Midge Dector, uh, who uh, listeners to this podcast will be very familiar with um, uh, as a sort of underrated uh, supervillain of uh, post-war American life. Uh, so but let's, let's, let's talk about uh, um, Betty Friedan. And, and maybe the way to start it is just like, um, you know, as I mentioned, she's like, uh, on the one hand, a very major figure, but has always been, you know, at the center of a storm of controversy. So maybe like just like uh, outlining, you know, like what her achievements are, but then also what are some of the questions that people have had about her? Yeah. So Betty Friedan is a person who was irascible and difficult. She had, you know, outbursts of rage uh, and she made some real misjudgments. And, you know, some of those were, motivated by what I think like you can fairly call just like plain personal bigotry, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, she dramatically changed gender relations in America. She dramatically changed federal policy. Uh, she was a sort of founder in this way of the, of the second wave feminist movement that without her, it would never have happened. And our lives would not look the way they did, I think they would have looked tremendously worse uh, if it were not for Betty Friedan, right? So this is, you know, one of these figures of history um, who 
was personally small and politically quite outsized, right? She has mm. these principles and ambitions uh, that her personal character didn't really match up to. Um, it's part of why I really loved spending a lot of time with her. Recently, when I wrote a review for The New Yorker of these two new books that cover um, The Second Wave and, and Betty Friedan in particular. Yeah, well, l l let's maybe try to situate her um, uh, a bit more like in sort of uh, uh, sort of history, you know, like she's born in 1921, um, uh, you know, is initially like sort of politicized into the, the radical left is, is a, a communist party uh, member um, uh, has, um, I think in your piece, you mentioned she's like too intellectual for the communist party. Uh, yeah. So like, maybe let's give a little bit of like background yeah. for anybody who's just like, who the hell is Betty Friedan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's the author of a book that came out in 1963 called mm. the feminine mystique, which was a, account of what Betty saw as a really a, a, a moment of anti-feminist backlash uh, that had occurred in the 1940s and 50s and that had left uh, American women worse off than they had been before that period, right? So Betty Friedan in The Feminine Mystique, you know, The Feminine Mystique is sort of thought of as like the housewives liberation book, right? Mm -hmm. She is critiquing a ideal of white middle-class American womanhood that keeps women out of the public sphere and devoted to sort of hearth and home and uh, homemaking and child rearing, right? And mm -hmm. Betty, who had a background in psychology, she had gone to graduate school for psychology, um, understood this role as very psychically claustrophobic mm -hmm. for the women who uh, were placed into it. And she also saw it as a historical anomaly. I think now from our perch, we can sort of use the 1950s as a shorthand for this like pre-feminist gender status quo, right? Like mm -hmm. what it was before we all awoke to feminism, but feminism long predates the 1950s yeah. and the 1940s and 50s uh, gender relation status that sort of created that 1950s housewife, Betty Cleaver, feminine mystique era was the product of a real political project to get women out of the workforce, white middle-class women back into the home and uh, having more babies. That was, you know, deliberate. And Betty Friedan really traces that project and sort of incited with her book, which was a massive bestseller, uh, this sort of awakening of women to uh, a rediscovery of feminism that a lot of them had sort of thought of as passe and left behind. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I so, 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 I, that book kind of made her, uh, you know, like one of the um, uh, early and rare feminist stars of the period. Um, I mean, just thinking about it historically, like the only other comparable figure would be someone like. Um, uh, Simo, uh, de Beauvais with like the second sex, uh, which was also like roughly around the same time. Uh, yeah, but, but there was I mean, there was not a lot of uh, uh, precisely because of that sort of backlash and suppression of feminism. Uh, you know, like the the older um, uh, feminist um, uh, stars, uh, you know, were not really visible anymore. Even the ones that were alive, like um, Margaret Sangster, she had sort of narrowed her program to like sort of, you know, birth control. Yeah, and Alice, Alice Paul, like a lot of the suffragettes 
yeah. generation were actually still alive. They were yeah. in their 70s and 80s at the time, uh, but they were considered so oppressively passe. Like, mm. actually, the way that young people in Betty Friedan's era understood first wave suffragette feminism is almost identical to the way we and our young people mm. in our era understand second wave feminism. It's like those are old white ladies. They are out of touch. Mm -hmm. uh, they, you know, we got what they wanted and now they're just kind of continuing to complain. It's a narcissistic and excessive enterprise, right? Like that's just mm. sort of like the idea. But um, uh, without I, I, feminism, yeah, like without feminism in that era mm. when Freegan was writing, um, you know, you actually, it turns out you actually need a kind of continuous feminist uh, force because yeah. cultural inertia will like uh and and you know the forces of misogyny actively uh will impose a gender hierarchy which like mm. women actual real world women including ones who are not heavily politicized will find like entirely unsatisfactory um and so in that way i think you're right that her moment of you know confronting an anti-feminist backlash that had been like largely victorious and trying to revive a feminist movement has a lot of parallels to our move, our moment right now. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I mentioned with the suffragettes, um, as it happened, I had recently been watching with my daughters, uh, Mary Poppins, uh, and I hadn't uh, seen the movie for a long time and had totally forgotten that the um, uh, the mother of the, the family in Mary Poppins is a suffragette. And she's exactly kind of portrayed <laughs> as, uh, you know, I mean, the, the whole motion of the plot is that because she's so caught up in the, this cause and neglecting her family that they need the intervention of this divine force of uh, traditional femininity in the form of Mary Poppins. Uh, so, uh, so, so uh, anyways, but otherwise, uh, a fine movie. Uh, uh, but I, I think the trad wife comes in to save the children. Yeah. Yeah, if if you if you um do watch it with your kids, uh, uh perhaps uh, have a little conversation. Um, in any case, <laughs> the, uh, uh, um, so 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 I mean that 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 is her um her moment, and then she leverages, which I I think is also quite uh impressive because I mean we've had people who have had like you know re uh, really successful uh books that deal with a topical issue um, and then remain authors. Um, I think the other interesting thing about her is that she leverages that into like an actual political movement of, you know, creating uh, the national organization uh, uh, for women uh, now. Um, so do, do you, um, and, and maybe to talk about that, I mean, I think that that makes sense in light of her like larger political history that she um, uh, had this sort of prior political uh, formation um, that that led her to like be interested not just in being a best-selling writer, but the leader of a, a mass political movement. Yeah, Betty Friedan did not start off exactly with the ambition of being like a literary celebrity. She started <laughs> off on the political left. So, like you mentioned, when she went to college, she's from small town Illinois. She's literally <laughs> from Peoria. Um, she was born in Peoria, Illinois, in 1921, and came east for college and went to Smith. Uh, and that's where she sort of had this political awakening in just sort of like the war time and immediately pre-World War II era as a communist. Um, and she really became quite committed to communism in a way that was not yet 
taboo on the American left mm -hmm. uh, before World War II. So, you know, she later went to graduate school in Berkeley and she tried to join the East Bay branch of the Communist Party. And they're like, no, you're too intellectual. You're not allowed to be here, which like, have you, have you heard, have you been, have you met any communists? They're all intellectuals, um, but they didn't want her. And, you know, meanwhile, the, F we only I, know I this because there's, when I read that part in your uh, essay, if there was a, some sort of gender dynamic there as well, like it's not, not that she's an intellectual because they had like, you know, like people, yeah, like they had a lot of right? male intellectuals, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and we only know about this scene, of course, because there was an FBI informant in the corner, yeah. like frantically scribbling notes, uh, and this wound up in her FBI file. Uh, the FBI was monitoring Betty Friedan from the time she was about 20 years old. Mm -hmm. um, her file contains essays she wrote in high school. Mm -hmm. um, so she was on their radar very, very young. And, um, you know, she did have a degree of paranoia, especially sort of at the height of her career the sense that she was going to be labeled a radical and exiled. Um, mm -hmm. And part of that comes like, frankly, because she had been so deeply involved with uh, the communist left yeah. in her extreme youth. She had like dated a bunch of guys in Oppenheimer's lab, actually mm -hmm. like they like, and then, you know, in the 1950s, when she's a married woman, she starts seeing all of her ex-boyfriends get hauled in front of Joy Joseph McCarthy. Um, and what happened to them served as her like a stark reminder of what happens when you stray outside of the mainstream. So she had this like political realignment in response to the Red Scare, in response to like these personal uh, experiences that made her much more wary of um, the dangers of being seen as extreme. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that, 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 that's right. The, the sort of McCarthyism is very formative. And I think that it actually explains, although it doesn't excuse, um, some of the uh, homophobia that like, uh, you know, as, as I think historians have uh, demonstrated, the period of McCarthyism was also the period of the Lavender Scare. Uh, and the two are combined that the sort of, you know, um, accusations of uh, homosexuality were used uh, to weed people out of the federal bureaucracy and, um, uh um, sort of uh, covert communism and covert homosexuality were seen as overlapping uh, and intertwined dangers. Um, and so for someone uh, you know, like Smith, who had been part of the radical left, had seen it destroyed by the instruments of the state, um, um, and had seen how uh, homophobia had been deployed as part of that um, uh, counter-revolution and that social purge, uh, I mean, these are all, like, very formative experiences uh, telling her, you know, like, where the dangers are. Yeah, I think that's accurate. But I also think, you know, we're, get, well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, and mm. I can go back to the biography, because you asked me about the formation of NOW. And the National Organization for Women was a group that Free Dan founded really in cooperation with a few other women, but especially Polly Murray, the legal mm. scholar, in 1966. And the thing about Betty Friedan and her call for a feminist revival is that like she popularized the idea, but she didn't like invent it, right? So in policy circles in and around Washington, there were a lot of women working for particularly the Democratic Party and also particularly labor unions uh, who had seen failures of the civil rights and labor movements to sort of grapple in ways that they felt were appropriate and serious enough with the issue of women's equality. 
uh, there was frustration with women's backsliding uh, in terms of their social status, income, workforce participation, uh, life options. You know, this had been a retreat from the public sphere that had happened in the 1940s and 50s. And these women were frustrated with that uh, the same way that Freakian was. And then what really fucking pissed them off was the lack of enforcement of Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So mm-hmm. in 1964, the Civil Rights Act passed. Title VII is a provision within that Civil Rights Act that um, prohibits discrimination in employment. And in Title VII, there's a prohibition, federal prohibition on sex discrimination in employment. And, you know, to enforce this, uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is established with a whole new federal agency. Uh, meant to enforce uh, non-discrimination law uh, by employers. And the EEOC commissioners consider the sex discrimination ban in the law as a joke. Mm-hmm. They start referring to it as the bunny law because they're like, if we enforce this, we would have to make men be Playboy bunnies at the Playboy Club. You know, it was they were like literally laughing about it, right? Um, mm-hmm. But meanwhile, they're getting tons and tons and tons of sex discrimination complaints at the EEOC, mm-hmm. there's, you know, the New York Times is running sex segregated help wanted ads. Like these are the good jobs that men can get. And here on mm-hmm. this other page are the bad jobs that women have to settle for. Um, flight attendants are being fired at the age of 32 or if they're over 125 pounds. Um, there's not a word yet for what we call sexual harassment, but it's a uh, endemic feature of women's mm-hmm. experience in paid work. <clears throat> Um, and this stuff is not really in the popular consciousness the way that it is now, but that Mm -hmm. does not mean that women are okay with it. They're actually profoundly pissed off Mm -hmm. and looking uh, to the state for redress in accordance with the law. And the EEOC is refusing to enforce it. Uh, Yeah, no, and in, in, in terms of, I mean, I'm really glad you mentioned Polly Murray because, um, uh, you know, like she represents you know, the, um, the sort of legal side of this and, you know, like mm-hmm. she's, um, uh, uh, African-American woman, um, uh, for our later discussion, uh, you know, when we return to the issue of, uh, just sort of homophobia, uh, you know, very interesting because, you know, like, um, it's clear from her biography, she had, uh, throughout her life, uh, 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 said that she uh was a uh, you know a man trapped in a woman's body um but uh, and, she's and also... relationships with women yeah sexual relationships work seemingly exclusively with women yeah yeah and was a, a pioneer um of the idea of a legal uh stra- a legal strategy uh on the issue of civil rights um and then later on the issue of uh women's rights uh that, that is to say that like you know like in the sort of um early 20th century it was like unclear what was the best path forward for overcoming um uh jim crow and segregation and she was like one of the real pioneers that said you know like the the um the key instrument of the state and the power of the state is in the laws that if we can get you know, um, uh, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson overturned, if we can like, you know, like um, uh, uh, get civil rights laws overturned, uh, that will be an instrument of power. Um, And, you know, like more crucially, like to distinguish that between like later forms of legal liberalism, that that's in combination with um, uh, uh, social mobilization, that you both get 
the laws in place and then you get people who understand these laws or you know like are um are um uh um, uh, taught about these laws and 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 what their rights actually are, and can mobilize to um, uh, uh, push for them in the real world. Um, so, so I mean, I, I think that's a, like a sort of crucial component. And I, I would say that Betty Friedan herself then becomes very important because if you have people that are starting to put in, you know, the, the proper legal language and it's not enforced, then you need like you know a popularizer, someone who can like you know name name the problem. Like, I, I think that, that that's a, a crucial part of the like, feminine mystique. Like, it, people had this, as you say, discontent. Uh, women had this discontent, but they didn't have a name for it. And she was the one who named it. And th- that's, like, just a she huge thing. She called it the problem that has no name. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, here's a, you're describing a social change strategy I've heard called suits and boots, which mm-hmm. is this idea that you need both uh, people who can manipulate existing institutions seek reform or enforcement of existing rules who can be you know playing on the terms of the elite uh and Mm -hmm. that's something that you know people like polly murray are great at those are lawyers Mm -hmm. uh those are lobbyists um act up was in this model as well um they had sort of an insider group uh the naacp which now was eventually modeled on had this model but then you don't just need them right you Mm -hmm. also need a massive uh group of people who can take to the streets and who can impose pressure um in these like sort of less institutionally refined ways. Uh, so you need both the suits in the courtroom and the boots uh, mm-hmm. on the street. Suits, suits and boots. I think it's cute. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, no, you know, no, no, this, no, no. Yeah, and it, it describes the, the actual, you know, um, uh, the way the movement came together in the um, uh, 1960s. And I would add, like, in our discussion of Friedan, like, there tends to be a tension between the suits and the boots, right? Like, the, yes, the people yeah. who are, you know, like, there's an inherent um, uh, going to be conflicts uh, over local... They don't sp- trust each other. Yeah, yeah they don't trust each is... other. Yeah, yeah, because they have, like, a different orientation and different, like, focus in, like, what they should be doing. Uh, even though I mean, one can see them working together, like on a macro level but that's not how it's felt existentially existentially yeah, it's retaining, felt like retaining those allegiances is uh the impossible task that virtually <laughs> everybody every group fails i actually think for a really good account of this um readers should consider picking up sarah shulman's history of act up called mm-hmm. let the record show it's an absolute doorstop of a book it's like 800 pages um but it's a really good illustration of how the um alliance between the people on those two tracks eventually like it, it was very very effective for some years and then eventually broke down which is something you know that we can also see happen towards now sort of later in its history but what happens is that you know there is this discontent among the elites mm-hmm. um and these like credentialed experts in washington um you know there's not a ton of women working in politics the parties at the time had what were called ladies auxiliaries, which is where, like, if you were a woman working in politics, you had to sort of go and sit at the kids' table. Um, but they, there were enough of them. This woman named Catherine East, in particular, who's like a Democratic Party operative, was very well connected. Um, and they sort of came to Ferdan and they're like, be our big public face, make our, like, transform our backroom pressure campaign into 
a legitimate social movement that can pressure the federal government from the outside. Uh, and that's where we find Betty Friedan in her hotel room in Washington, D.C. in 1966 mm -hmm. with a room full of very drunk women uh, trying to, you know, from various states uh, who are involved in sort of advocacy for women's rights, trying to get them all to sign on to this. And she winds and it winds, turns into a screaming fight. Mm hmm. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing scene and yeah, I, had no, read, no. <laughs> I had read about it before um, you know Polly Murray mm -hmm. they call this meeting of these women everybody's in town for this big conference so they call a meeting and, and it's after this big reception at the State Department that mm -hmm. had apparently been very boozy um, mm -hmm. so everybody kind of staggers in at like midnight to Betty Friedan's hotel suite at the Washington <laughs> Hilton and they're like oh it's a party like Betty's having us here for a party. Um, yeah. And then they're still drinking. They're drinking from the mini bar. And Polly Murray gets up clutching her little yellow legal pad and begins to talk in her very like um, efficacious, uh, proper Polly Murray way <clears throat> about this new organization she wants to launch mm -hmm. like called mm -hmm. the, that she's calling the NAACP for women. But, oh, why don't we call it now? Mm-hmm. And these women who are kind of just there to have a good time <laughs> uh, yeah. are like, God, do we need to, do we have to, do we really want to, can't we just work with, you know, within the existing structures and Betty Friedan in very typical Betty Friedan fashion screams at everybody, tries to throw them out and then locks herself in the bathroom. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's quite the scene. Uh, uh, I'll just say, like, tangentially, like, you know, we can kind of um, maybe historicize the, 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 the drinking there. You know, I mean, this is the sort of madman era. You know, like, people are at that period are, you know, drink much more, especially in things like sort of, you know, conventions and political events. Uh, and, and then also, like, you know, although men like, you know, Teddy Kennedy were obviously huge alcoholics, there's a little bit of a gender di dimension as well in the sense that, you know, like in this oppressive uh, patriarchal uh, world, uh, you know, like alcohol was one of the means of uh, self-medication. It was like, you know, mother's little helper. <laughs> yeah. It was known. So, uh, so, so it kind of, you know, the drinking, um, um, you know, it, it has like, uh, uh, we could, we could understand it historically, but it is like quite the scene. And, but I mean, I think it makes it all the more impressive that Murray and Friedan were able to like, you know, get everyone, you know, they were actually able, you know, within yeah. that chaos to actually create this, uh, or, or, um, organization. Um, uh, and, and then I, I think, you know, what, um, uh, the suits and boots strategy, I think, really kicks in once you have now, um, uh, a, a, as um, the sort of megaphone uh, uh, the, uh, phone or the, you know, like the, the voice of dis discontent that people can rally around. And I think like, you know, in your piece, it, it comes out very strongly. Um, the interesting thing is, like, um, how many women who are not otherwise politicized or politicized in the way of a, like a left social movement get attracted once they see, Oh, you know, there's this organization it's concerned about like, you know, what's happening to women is concerned. Uh, I mean, especially right for now, like abortion is a huge rallying cry because yeah. that, that, that's something that like, you know, uh, then as now a lot of women like experience in their lives. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, cuts across all demographics and political lines. And even if you don't experience it, you have to think about it, right? Yeah. 
because it always could be you. Yeah. The yeah. or you know someone, or you know you're yeah. you have an um, aunt or a mom that had an abortion. Like it's it's, it's just like a uh, uh, woven into the fabric of everyone's life. Yeah, that was you know 1966 is a pre-Roe era, um, mm-hmm. and it is an era of you know part of the anti-feminist backlash of the 1940s and 50s was sort of renewed. Uh, and often quite draconian enforcement of abortion bans that had been like sort of more laxly enforced uh, in prior eras. Um, which, and then an attendant uh, surge in women's mortality rates, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, Betty Friedan really shapes now in her own image. She's a first- When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply president she served for four years until 1970 and she sets out a series of goals um the first is like actual title seven enforcement and uh employment non-discrimination she wants abortion rights mm-hmm. she wants the era and she wants a national child care program um title seven enforcement has been weakened in the ensuing mm-hmm. decades but they got it like the eeoc mm-hmm considers sex discrimination to be banned in federal law now and they did not when betty friedan started and they probably wouldn't have if betty friedan had been on their ass um they changed worked very hard to change public opinion on abortion which did facilitate the real v wade mm-hmm. uh decision we have lost that since um yeah. but we gained it in no small part because of now's work and also because of betty friedan's work because partly Another thing she did during this era was found NARAL, um, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a whole other large women's rights organization, um, National Association for the Appeal of Abortion Laws, uh, which I believe has since changed its acronym. But that was mm-hmm. an effort Betty Friedan made to sort of um, recruit an alliance of healthcare professionals and feminists who had sort of been separate and historically occasionally opposed on the question of abortion rights, but were like coming around to uh, shared support of abortion rights in the 1960s. And Friedan really uh, solidified that alliance with NARAL. Uh, another goal she had was um, National Child Care Program, which they very nearly got. It passed the Senate. It passed the House. Uh, President Nixon was about an inch from signing it. And then Pat Buchanan, his arch conservative speechwriter, yeah. convinced him not to. Um, and everybody in the country by the end of Friedan's term as president of now considered the ERA a pretty much done deal. Mm-hmm. They're like, this is so banal. Of course, we're going to pass the ERA. Um, and then an ally of Buchanan's, Hillish Schlafly, um, with substantial financial backing from groups like the Mormon church uh, organized to, you know, rally the far right and defeat the ERA. So, you Mm -hmm. know, she, Friedan's legacy and and now's legacy was one that really changed um, our world. And it is one that has been chipped away at very slowly 
and deliberately. And now we are much more vulnerable uh, to losing the gains that her work enabled us to achieve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and, and th th that's uh, one reason why um, uh, I was thinking you know, after reading your article, like how relevant her life is uh, for now, because it seems like a lot of the same issues, uh, you know, that uh, uh, um, politicized her and mobilized her and mobilized now in the uh, 1960s are like, again, pertinent. And a lot of the same strategic questions are very uh, uh, pertinent um, again. Uh, now, you know, at the start, I had sort of said, you know, problematic fave, because you know, like, obviously, like, you know, like, the, the case you've laid out is for her importance, I think, is like, uh, is huge. I mean, this is like, you know, someone who um, uh, uh, was responsible for and uh, helped inside a movement that was responsible for, like, you know, these major um, uh, transformative changes in American society, um, you know, like, but she's always been someone, you know, like, um uh, uh, that people have had mixed feelings about and so, so do you want to like outline what some of the uh, some of the reasons for that are well she was absolutely impossible uh um, <laughs> you know this is there i think there were like two times just in my piece where she gets so upset that she throws a tantrum and locks herself in the bathroom yeah and yeah, i was yeah. on the phone i, with I was my... thinking that was a, a common strategy it seems like for her. at least yeah. i only found two but like, i was yeah. on the phone with the fact checker and he's <laughs> like how often did she lock herself in the bathroom? Yeah. And I was like, I only know of these two, but like, and another, there's another scene in uh, Rachel Steyer's book, which is mm. one of the ones that I review in which she doesn't get her way. And she sort of like slams the phone and then sort of like stomps her feet like a child. Mm. You know, she's, um, she's irascible. Uh, and she can make these like great displays of woundedness. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, that's like kind of, I think like an ordinary human failure. Sure. Right? Yeah, um, yeah. 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 I yeah. see, I see yeah. in Friedan, somebody with like, and, and you know, I, I, maybe... add, I mean, like if you're thinking about it, like, you know, like, you know, the, 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 these sort of like psychological quirks and problems are like, you know, like not unknown in like, you know, male leaders. Like I would not say Lyndon Johnson or Richard Nixon, you know, her contemporaries are like, you know, models of psychological health. Uh, so, and, right, but like uh, yeah. women, women are held to a higher behavioral yeah, yeah, standard, right? right? And yeah. like we see her uh, personality flaws as out as like eclipsing her accomplishments mm -hmm. instead of the other way around. Yeah, uh, and we just don't assess men that way. Yeah, uh, but I think the thing that really has left the stain on Friedan's legacy was her homophobia, and in particular mm -hmm. her homophobia towards lesbians which was like sort of the the bulk of her homophobic attention was uh directed at women um although the feminine mystique does have some nice uh like shivs at gay men she's like housewives uh become overly attentive and obsessed with their sons which makes those sons gay which is why we need to get women into the workforce and i'm like is that really why <laughs> um, like well i don't i think it's you know um but anyway but like she really mostly she was focusing on lesbians yeah. who were increasingly visible and uh, increasingly out within the women's liberation movement, the second mm -hmm. wave feminist movement of the late 1960s and early 70s. Um, and there's a few reasons for this. There, you know, well, well, we had talked was... about the, um, uh, just to circle back, we had mentioned earlier the sort of lavender scare of the 1940s and uh, late 40s and early 50s. But, but, but yeah, yeah well, there, there are other reasons as well. 
Yeah, you know, there's um there's a nascent gay rights movement in the post Stonewall mm. era. Um, there is sort of independent, like an intellectually independent lineage of um, like radical feminist thought that comes to uh, embrace lesbianism as like one uh, legitimate expression of feminist identity. Um, there is an increasing, you know, like Betty Friedan comes from the far left, but I would I would position her very solidly as a liberal feminist, right? Mm-hmm. There is sort of independently emerging from the new left, uh, as opposed to Freddy and old left, from the new left, like anti-war, civil rights, anti-draft movement. There is a new kind of radical feminism emerging mm-hmm. um, among people who are, you know, like 10, 15 years younger than Friedan. And they are much more interested in sexual politics. Mm -hmm. They are much more interested in like how heterosexuality is constructed, how the family is constructed, um, how marriage and motherhood and dating are all sort of arranged around a Mm. presumption of women's like self-sacrifice and submission. Right. Um, And Friedan is kind of allergic to that shit. Uh, She's like, why would I give a crap about your personal life? Mm-hmm. Um, and and she sees the rise of a lesbian rights claim and um, the sort of like mass coming out of lesbians that was happening in this era as symptomatic of this like intellectual failure. Um, but I actually think that you can explain this in part through Friedan's own biography. Because um, mm. Friedan was a woman who had had like horrifically bad luck with heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this like explains all of her views or like is, you know, a particularly useful way to assess feminists in general. But I think with Friedan, it's really interesting. You know, she had this background in psychology, um, mm-hmm. which was like a field she left in part because um like she couldn't stomach the misogyny in mm-hmm. the field's theoretical foundations. Like there's a yeah. scene of, you know, she's on a date with this psychology graduate student and he's like trying to like nag her by telling her about like the theory of penis envy. Yeah. <laughs> um, she gets sexually assaulted by one of her graduate school professors. She yeah. gets sexually assaulted by a couple of other dates. Um, but she just can't get, like in in her like very young life, she just can't get boys to like her. Mm-hmm. Um, like men just don't; they're just not really interested in Betty. Um, she's like very serious. She's very like intellectually ambitious. She's not like the prettiest girl. And then she winds up marrying this kind of piece of shit guy, Carl yeah. Friedan, um, who like almost immediately starts like a cheating on and b beating her. Um, she has a horrific marriage. Yeah. And like Betty is very disappointed in heterosexuality and she kind of, but she never gives up on it. Right. She's Mm -hmm. always trying to make it work. And one of her rationales for feminism is like, no, we need feminism to redeem heterosexuality. We need Mm -hmm. feminism for love to work so that, you know, we can have this great flowering of affinity between equals and not be sort of kept from each other by this hierarchy and inequality. You know, sort of the 
the accusation leveled against feminists, or at least the one that's been leveled against me, right, is mm. that like you're a lesbian because you failed at heterosexuality, right? Mm-hmm. And Free Dan's personal sense of having failed at heterosexuality made her a virulent anti-lesbian <laughs> homophobe and like yeah. made her really double down on um, like trying to succeed at and and redeem this project of of you know marriage and and heterosexual partnership yeah no that's so interesting uh i mean because you know i mean she was adverse to sort of politicizing the personal realm but in some ways she herself had already done that like she had you know made the heterosexual family the sort of normative bulwark that we have to make work that is i mean by your account that seems like the basis of the sort of project. Um, and I mean, a couple of things you said, I want to sort of tease out. Um, I mean, we, as I uh, mentioned um, earlier, the sort of formation, you know, of like, you know, McCarthyism and the Lavender scare thing. And then, but you, you mentioned that she was, you know, understood very early on. Um, and this was going really against the grain of the forties and fifties, the misogynist basis of like, a, you know, um, uh, uh, a lot of Freudian and other, you know, psychological models. And, but, but she seems to have bought into the homophobic basis of those theories, right? Like, cause her idea is like, yeah. you know, the, 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 the gay men are created by, you know, uh, overprotective mothers, uh, you know, is, is pretty standard. And so it is interesting the degree to which, um, um, you know, she is, uh, um, uh, both, uh, buying into, um, uh, you know, this very heteronormative uh, uh, um, model of the family, even as she is aware as much as anyone is, you know, of like all its problems. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, she really thinks that the way that you fix marriage and the family and like sort of create happiness within the home, which is like a, a unit she doesn't really question, right? Mm-hmm. She assumes that there's going to be a a family home uh, and and that there needs to be harmony within it. She thinks that the way you get there is by creating as much formal and, and like practicable equality outside the home as possible. Mm-hmm. And like, there's a degree to which like that is a decent argument. <laughs> like if yeah. you want to make it harder for men to like beat and rape, you know, the women in their private orbit, uh, one way to do it is to make sure those women have enforceable legal rights mm-hmm. that are taken seriously. One way to do it is make sure that those women have money so that they can like leave or sue his ass. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and these are uh, one, another way to do it is to, you know, make sure that uh, the law and the culture outside the home are enforcing women's dignity so that it doesn't seem so rational and, and acceptable to like beat and rape women in private. Um, so, you know, she's not crazy, but she did kind of, she's not crazy strategically, right? Mm-hmm. But I think her political understanding of these, you know, quote unquote, private sphere aspects of women's oppression as somehow lesser, uh, I think it blinkered and blinded her. And, you know, she was like, not um, like passively homophobic mm-hmm. in the way that I think <laughs> we would like, maybe like forgive a lot of people of that generation for being, or at least expect yeah. them to be, right? She was quite actively homophobic. Mm-hmm. Uh, she referred to lesbians as the quote-unquote lavender menace. Mm-hmm. Um, she threatened to out Now's executive director, who at the time was uh, married to a man and um, sort of like quite, it sounds like quite 
seriously and painfully struggling with her lesbian identity. Mm. You know, it was like, she was cruel. Um, mm. She got women fired for being gay, like crazy shit. Um, yeah, yeah. And it was really, and like to her credit, she changed her mind on this eventually, um, but not before she had really thoroughly lost the fight within the feminist movement. Cause this isn't, you know, when I went into this, writing this piece and, and reading more about Ferdan, I thought of this, of now as institutionally homophobic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I assumed that this was something that her fellow leaders in the group uh, endorsed, uh, that it was something that the group membership sort of like implicitly or explicitly endorsed. And that's in fact not the case at all. This was mm-hmm. Betty's problem. And the rank and file uh, made it clear that they were not on her side and that they, you know, wanted to embrace lesbian rights or at least not exclude lesbians as as fiercely as Friedan wanted to. So like the respectability politics that Friedan was very fiercely advocating for by even the early 70s, they were like losing an appeal among the liberal feminist uh, sort of yeah. shock troops that she was relying on to make now a relevant national organization. Yeah. And not just liberal feminists. I mean, like it's sort of interesting uh, that even the sort you know, that she wanted to get you know, respectable Republican women on board. And uh, even those at that time, and then this might have changed later, but at that time, we're not like into homophobia the degree that she was, right? Like, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, Catherine Turk's book, The Women of Now, which is one of the two books that I reviewed, features this woman, Patricia Hill Burnett, who was a Detroit housewife. And like, she was like, a, she was like I'm a philanthropist. Mm-hmm. I like to paint watercolors. Um and she was drawn to now in large part because of their support for abortion rights. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was Friedan's idea of a perfect ideal now member. She was a upper middle class, um, you know, sort of elite conservative woman. She had been Miss Michigan in her youth. She was yeah. like very pretty. Um, and she was like, I have no appetite for this anti-lesbian shit. She was <laughs> yeah. like, I don't, she's like, this seems pointless. Uh, men hate all feminists anyway. <laughs> like, there's no yeah. point in capitulating to respectability politics because we're just weakening ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was not like, you know, Betty Friedan very much saw herself as sort of protecting now from the judgment mm-hmm. of mainstream women, from the rejection of mainstream women with her homophobia, right? She saw it as like strategically mm-hmm. smart but these like mainstream women who she's imagining are not really like lining up enthusiastically behind a homophobic message. They're kind of like shrugging at it. Yeah. Well, and I think that actually has also sort of resonance for now because I mean, one does see, you know, like a kind of, um, on the left, like a kind of argument for, you know, uh, semi, um, uh, transphobic views on the idea, well, you know, like uh, um, uh, trans politics alienates people and it's, um, uh, you know, we have to like, you know, win a, lar- um, um, a large coalition. And the thing is, you know, I, I mean, I've talked about this before on the podcast, like there's not a lot of like electoral uh, evidence uh, of this. Like I think the actual like transphobia, uh, you know, doesn't really do that well like politically, especially like, you know, in actual contested elections. But beyond that, like the people making that, argument, I mean, it seems like a bad faith argument. Like you're, you're conjuring up a popular transphobia um, 
to justify your own policy preferences. <laughs> and I feel like right. that, 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 that's what uh, Fridan was doing a bit, like, like you know, conjuring up. We have to appeal to these hypothetical, like, um, uh, you know, uh, women who would support feminism, um, uh, but are, would be alienated by lesbianism. Uh, but it, that's actually like, because you, you know, she herself was, uh, homophobic, right? Like, yeah, like, I mean, I, I don't want to be like too like crudely cynical, but the, I mean that that does seem to be the move, right? Like, you you justify well, yeah, your it's like it's not me. It's it's like bigotry by proxy. It's like yeah, you yeah. invent somebody else who's a bigot to justify yeah, yeah. your own bigotry. But yeah. like also, you know, Friedan's focus on respectability politics really does remind me a lot of like the contemporary reactionary centrist mm-hmm. position uh, and sort of like the reflexive you know, democratic political consultant uh, idea that you're always pitching to the Trump voter in a diner in Iowa, Mm -hmm. in Ohio. Right. Um, And like, assuming that that person's uh, like a is a majority uh, B like can be persuaded to like support you Mm -hmm. in the first place. And like C is uh, intensely motivated by the things that you're assuming they're motivated by. Mm -hmm. Uh, is a persistent fantasy, even without evidence, right? Like the evidence yeah. that I think we're seeing piled upon us, both in Free Dance era and ours, is it like abortion rights? Is it like incredibly popular? <laughs> uh, and that you can garner a ton of uh, support by backing them uh, mm-hmm. and by making them a central issue. And that, you know, homophobia, tr- transphobia, queerphobia, it's... Um, certainly very alienating to, or very animating to some people, but only a small minority mm-hmm. who are never really going to be on your side anyway. Like the yeah. trans thing, kids in sports, you know, 90% of voters are going to be like, what are you talking about? What's wrong with you? Who could possibly give a shit? Like they're not motivated by this. Like even, yeah. even the people who might be, you know, persuadable to a transphobic argument, don't feel as strongly about it as the people, uh, informing us so breathlessly that this is their number yeah. one issue you know <laughs> yeah no, no i think I, I think that's uh, i think that's absolutely right and i think um it, it's the um uh, the degree to which respectability politics depends upon creating a, a fantasy of um uh, uh a, a popular base uh, that that is winnable, like, uh, and, and rather than like you know trying to actually build the coalition that you already have, uh, uh, and uh, work with the people that are already on your side, like like or, or taking any responsibility for persuasion. You know the yes, thing yes. about like politics, law, these big mm-hmm. organizations like now is that they don't have to just conform or like shape themselves around mm-hmm. public opinion. They have the have some influence at least over changing public opinion yeah, right yeah. um and that was something that Friedan actually was quite willing to do on some issues like the era and abortion rights neither of them mm-hmm. those was like especially popular uh when she took them on but she found that they were um sort of of paramount importance to her that she was willing to do something mm-hmm. that risked mm-hmm. alienating her allies right like that risked um undermining relationships that were important to her like the union the unions were a huge part of now's early mm-hmm. um coalition like one of the things you learn when you study the second wave is that like a lot of second wave feminism was only possible because of the presence of labor unions and mm-hmm. women's heavy uh 
enrollment in labor unions in a way that like sort of makes the idea of reviving uh, that kind of national feminist project seem really impossible today. But they didn't support the ERA. And when at Hmm. now's um, second annual convention, like Betty Friedan, like pushes through endorsement of the ERA, all the union women walk out because Hmm. their union doesn't allow them to be a part of a organization that's lobbying for the ERA, you know, and she was willing to do that because mm-hmm. she thought it was important enough. She wasn't willing to do it with the lesbians, which I think would have cost her less. Um, ultimately, opposing lesbian rights cost her much more than I think opposing them would have ever gotten her. Yeah, yeah, no, no. And then that does sort of point to her um, uh, her personal pol- uh, political tragedy, but then I, I, think, I think also resonates with um, uh, a lot of issues like now. Like, like there are people who, you know, like are picking hills to die on that I think are very strange hills. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, that, that's also, um, I mean, I think it's always useful when you're in politics to step back and think like, 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 why am I like, you know, making this the, you know, the litmus test and the thing that I will like, you know, destroy everything for. Then uh, yeah, it's a, uh, but I mean, like, you know, having stepped back, I mean, you know, um, in your piece, uh, and I'm very glad that you uh, uh, bring this note and sort of end on this note with, uh, you know, like like for all the sort of, you know, um, criticisms that we have of her, uh, you know, and then these are like major important criticisms, uh, you know, there's still this sense of achievement. And I think, I think you really bring out like all the contradictions um, uh, with the story of the um, uh, the general strike in like 1970. Uh, and uh, did you want to just like uh, maybe that's a, a, a nice note to end on uh, because it yeah. brings out her her difficulty uh, as a person, but then also how that was actually good in a movement leader. Yeah, so Friedan uh, is she leaves the presidency of now in 1970, uh, and she's at this meeting in March of 1970, sort of handing over the reins to her successor Eileen Hernandez, who's a a uh, really interesting figure in her own white right, a black uh, woman, women's rights activist who um, sort of a, a protege of Polly Murray's and had been active in the labor rights movement. Uh, and as she's delivering her like sort of farewell to now speech, she announces with no prior warning to anybody else <laughs> that five months from that day in August of 1970, now was going to throw a nationwide women's general strike. Um to which everybody in the audience goes, are you fucking kidding me? You know, and like all these women who now suddenly have to organize a massive action uh, and don't feel equipped to do it and don't feel like they have enough time and don't feel, you know, and, and, you know, Betty's saying this like into a news camera, you know, and it's sort of this trick that commits now to something very ambitious. Mm. Um, And, you know, to these women's great credit, they really pull it off. It was an unexpected runaway success. Tens of thousands of women participate uh, across the country and in other countries. People stop uh, going to work. They walk out of their jobs. They stop taking care of their kids. They stop having sex and doing housework. They are in the streets demanding equality. And it is a massive coalition, much bigger than what Friedan imagined for now. There's older women, there's lesbians, there's student groups, there's black women, uh, radical groups. There's like all this vast swath of the American female population coming in for this collective effort 
at gender equality uh, and, and their own liberation. And this, you know, the sort of premise of now is one that I think has gone like really out of fashion, which is that all women share an interest in the same political project of feminism. That's like actually a wildly ambitious, mm-hmm. optimistic, difficult strategy um, that Frigan herself found it like difficult to really mm. adhere to and believe in, right? Um, but when it was done well, it had this electrifying effect that changed the country, mm-hmm. I think really dramatically for the better. Um, and it was a wonderful moment. Yeah, no, it was, yeah, no, it's it's, it's it's a great moment, and uh, I'll have a link uh, to Mara's uh, article, uh, which uh, people can uh, read about all this, and uh, you can also read her other writings in the Guardian and listen to her podcast uh, in bed with the right. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, so so uh, more uh, Meyer Donegan is out there uh, for everyone uh, who wants it. Uh, so again, thank you uh, uh, once again for uh, being on the program. Thanks, Jeet. I had a blast. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.